Hi, this is Larry Pasca, Executive Director of NCSS, the National Council for the Social Studies. This episode features an author published in an NCSS journal. Please enjoy. You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Michael, we talk about curriculum a lot on this podcast. Sure, sure. Are you just a passive recipient of curriculum or have you actually been involved in trying to make some curriculum change, maybe at the district level or at the state level? So... <laughs> passive that's that's interesting so a little, we, little bit yeah, of a little bit of an insult in there i know i know so we did recently get uh new standards from the state in which we kind of sat down as a department to kind of suss out like you know what needed to go what needed to be added and so that was i mean it was very much a department-wide initiative rather than like you know an individual thing or it's something we're all definitely involved in so that was kind of interesting i did have to see some things that i, I really enjoyed go but ultimately, it was to ensure that we could kind of like get more current and, and hit more hit more things. So it was it was the right call, but it, it made me sad a little bit. Yeah, and of course the you know there's always debates over oh, whose cur- whose curriculum gets taught, you know what we focus on, and you know the I mean I I think we've talked a billion million times here, right? Like all the stories our guests have brought on about their own histories haven't been represented. Mm-hmm. I remember, I remember uh, Maribel Santiago talking about not learning anything about Mexican American histories and her school experience. I remember Amanda Vickery coming on and talking about not learning about slavery when she was really wanting to learn more about it in school. Yeah, and I know, I know that I did not get a critical history in school and had to like start being re-educated at the college level because I didn't get it in K twelve. So whose history we're teaching seems to be a big debate. Has that been the case with your district? Yeah. Yeah. And so that's where we have to, then this is where we have to like really think about, okay, well, what's the goal of what we're doing? And so this way we can tell those other histories. So again, like sometimes you see things go away, but it is for the, it's for, to ensure that we're teaching a better, fuller history. So that's been great. Now you've been involved somewhat on the state level, I think. No, I mean, I observe it, right? I get yes, the emails. That was it. You're a passive you should, participant. I think I, that was I, the I, I was, referring to myself there yes okay does podcast complaining on podcast count as being an active participant (laughs) well (laughs) i do that no this is your public square i try to support organizations that i know are fighting for the histories but i feel like i could do more and i've had it on my list of things to do and tried to get more involved in specific projects we have review projects for things coming through texas often makes headlines with the ridiculous ridiculous things that that are even suggested at the state level whether those actually become law and some of them do and i've you know i've i think that i've done state standards studies and just reading through the texas standards it's not a great experience it's not it's not a great overall curriculum but maybe we should like talk to somebody who's done a little bit deeper work on this and also maybe like thought about whose histories are represented maybe we should I'm get in. into that let's do How it you got so, a guest. Yes, we got a guest. We did bring one in today, and his name is Mohit Mehta. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's a great honor to be here with you all. Oh, my goodness. It's a great honor to have you with us. 
Mohit, can you tell us just a little bit first about your background in education? Yeah, this is so much to say and what you and uh, Michael have been talking about so far is I immigrated with my family to the United States when I was three years old as a consequence of the sort of uh, 1965 Immigration and Naturalization Act that a lot of Asian American families reference in their immigration histories, either one or two or three generations ago. And my family lived in rural Eastern Pennsylvania for a couple of years. And I can go into more of that history at a later time, but we made it to Texas. We made it to Texas in about 1984. And so I went through Texas public schools. I went to um, a private institution for my university experience, but then for my master's and PhD level studies at two public institutions. And I was a public school teacher for seven years as well. So I taught elementary education in the central Texas area in Austin. And I taught in bilingual classrooms with mainly um, Latinx students, but also, and this is a different subject altogether, perhaps for a different top topic at a later date, which is the popularity of dual language programs right now. So I experienced mm -hmm. that sort of the gentrification of dual language programs, especially in places like Texas, especially in places like Austin. And there's tons of folks like uh, Dan Hyman at uh, the University of uh, Texas El Paso doing work on this. And I lived it, right? I saw in the neighborhood, the income levels, the housing prices go up and the displacement of the original families that the bilingual program was intended for and sort of families driving in from all across Austin to attend what they called a boutique dual language program, right? So wow. that's a little bit of background on my teaching and, you know, growing up in Texas and some of the things that I have experienced that have really made me passionate about what is the policy that goes on to determine what the curriculum and, and the program offerings are, right, in our schools. Did, in your own school experience, did you see your stories represented? You know, obviously not. But I think, you know, whenever, obviously not, that's, a, that's an easy question, but it's also interesting in that most of my schooling experiences were in the 80s for elementary school, middle school, and then in the 90s. And so a lot of our media was limited to, of course, the books that we, that we saw in our classrooms, in the school libraries, but also in the public libraries, and then in television, right? Maybe a little bit of movies too, but those are the main forms of media. And so late 1980s, you had the start of The Simpsons and you had Apu, right, as a character who shows up. Yeah. And there's a lot that's been said and dissected about the racial tropes that are embedded within this character and the use of accents sort of as proxies for race. So a lot to be said for that. That was one sort of pernicious character from my childhood. But even before that is was the Jungle Book. So the Jungle Book, you know, you're so hungry for representation that you jump on anything that's even vaguely close to your ancestral culture. So for me, it was a Jungle Book. And only later did I understand that it was written by Rudyard Kipling, who was, you know, of British origin, a colonial colonist past, and he really applies a white gaze, a colonist gaze to this romanticized, exoticized story that takes place in India. But it was looking at this little Mowgli character and being like, hey, this is a brown skinned kid who, you know, got rescued from the jungles of, of India. And this is, this is the character of all of everything we read, all the history books and everything else that I can vaguely relate to. And I don't even realize, I don't think I, as a young student, I realized the potential problems 
of representation of somebody else's vision of your story until you know you start to unpack a lot of things, the history of colonization, the history of representation and who gets to tell whose story, right? Yeah, I know. And I just have this real vivid experience in my methods class. I assigned a chapter, a book chapter by Nori Nassim Rodriguez and Rosalie Ip. And it's called Hidden in History, Reconstructing Asian American History in Elementary Social Studies Classrooms. And at the end of class, one of my Asian American students just came up and said, you know, thanks, which I didn't deserve any thanks. I just like tried to find like a good representative work to focus on Asian American histories that we, but she's like, I just have never been represented ever, like in my schooling experience. And it was just heartbreaking, right? I was like, it's ridiculous that anyone should, should have that. And that, you know, it's not just representation, of course, it's right. Just histories that really address the ways that colonialism are normalized in our curriculum in so many ways. And so fortunately you've been doing some stuff about this. And when we were talking about Michael and I, being passive, maybe just me being passive. Maybe that's just me. <laughs> You've been pretty active in working towards addressing some of these issues. Can you tell us a little bit about some of your work? Yeah, it's a learning journey, right? So I started off as a classroom teacher. I'm currently pursuing my doctorate degree in curriculum and instruction and have still a little ways to go. But because of nationwide efforts across different states right now to either incorporate Asian American history as part of a state mandate, so you have places like New Jersey, Illinois, et cetera, that have passed various uh, state level legislations to include Asian American histories. You have other states like California that in 2025 will start to require ethnic studies as a high school requirement. And so I've had the you know great privilege and opportunity to sort of been called to be invited to do this work in folks who have a lot of on the grounds experience in organizing and mobilizing. So there's several organizations across the state of Texas, Asian American, new organizations that have sprung up in during the COVID-19 pandemic, first as a response to racialized hate crimes and violence. So to be a unified voice for Asian Americans in Texas, one is Asian Americans for Justice, a great group of um, leaders. We're also doing work now in two areas. One is down ballot representation in different political offices across Texas. And it's important to remember that Texas has the third largest Asian American population. So, you know, you have a student who's now in your class, Dan, who's gone through Texas schools, who've had no representation and, you know, perhaps the only acknowledgement of the contributions of Asian Americans and Asian Texans was, was your inclusion of that piece in your methods course. And that's probably the only acknowledgement that the students have ever received. So we see this need on the ground of mobilizing young people who've sort of been marginalized from whitewash histories in schools. And I've also experienced things like Texas has after Vietnam in Orange County and um, San Jose and other epicenters of Vietnamese American populations, Texas as well, Houston and Dallas, particularly Houston. So when we talk about things like the Vietnam War, and it's, it's told through a very uh, white American perspective. Right. So the consequences of the Vietnam War for American families, which, of course, I'm not discrediting at all. But the other side of the story is completely missing. The arrival of Vietnamese American families to Texas, their process of adaptation, coming to places like the Gulf Coast of Texas, where, very, where a lot of Vietnamese American families settled in places like Sea Drift. And because of economic change, because of 
Cold War attitudes. Um, a lot of these Vietnamese American communities on the Gulf Coast were subject to acts of violence. So in Sidra, for example, the Ku Klux Klan burned fishing boats of Vietnamese American fishermen and burned, you know, the houses of uh, Vietnamese American fishermen. A lot of us who are interested in this Asian Texan history don't learn this until we're in our 30s, 40s, 50s, way after our schooling experience, wow. even if that, right, if we're curious about that. And there's no reason why these stories, and there's many, many more that I include about the Asian American experience in Texas, is not, inclu is not included. And so right now I'm working with Asian Texans for Justice and other organizations like OCA Houston and other nonprofits to get through the State Board of Education in Texas, an elective course for high school students to learn Asian American history. It's an Asian American studies course. In 2018, the State Board of Education passed unanimously, not unanimously, I'm sorry, not the Mexican American studies course that had some through the some of the State Board of Education members, a little bit of friction or pushback. But thankfully, in 2020, there was an African-American studies course that was passed unanimously. And so there are groups of activists, scholars, educators in the Native American indigenous community, particularly in Grand Prairie, Texas, who've already piloted a Native American studies course. They've had great success. They have a waiting list of students who want to enroll in that course. And because of the successful endeavors of these other groups of activists and scholars, we were sort of invited at the table to write up a curricular framework for Asian American studies. So yesterday I had the honor of attending the first hearing of the State Board of Education, yesterday being August 1st. And we had out of 120 testimonies, at least a third of Asian American youth from across the state of Texas, from Dallas, from Houston, from the Central Texas area, who bust in to give their testimony of how their stories and their voices were missing from the curriculum. And it was incredible, it was so moving. And so we're trying to, there's a lot of talk right now that the State Board of Education, so if you've followed the social studies revision process, they've completely, they're making recommendations of working groups for revising everything completely. So for example, Texas history used to be taught independently as a course in fourth grade and seventh grade. And now there's recommendations to collapse it because we know all histories don't happen in isolation. So to study the Texas by itself or the United States or world history by itself is not enough. So there's efforts to consider the interlinkages, right, between um, state history, national history, and world history. And so it's being restructured, but there's a lot of pushback, both from teachers, from school districts, and of course from parents who have a very whitewashed idea of Texas being basically founded at the Battle of the Alamo, right? Lots to say about that. Uh, <laughs> um, I invite we you. Could, yeah. We could keep going. And I kid you not, like an hour ago, someone just randomly called me because I'm a social studies instructor and just started telling me about all their problems with the revisions. And I was like, who are you? Do you need an appointment? I, I don't know what's got even um, anyway. I'm not sure exactly what they're complaining. Someone was were, just cold it, calling you. Yes. They like just cold just... called me to just talk. So, and I was like, I asked them to send me an email. So, but yeah, so these, I really am appreciative of everyone who's doing this work. And I, I actually have got off my couch and my podcast a couple of times and gone to, you know, local districts where there was controversy about 
ethnic studies courses, right? African-American studies, other courses and spoke for those. And one of the nice things about it is for all of the bad press you hear, it is nice to show up and see like 85% of the people were there to speak for it. And so to see that solidarity that you know, that we're not, it's not just the negative voices that we see in the news, that there are communities fighting for these histories in our schools. And, and so it actually made me feel really energized to go do it. So I guess, um, I guess I'm just talking to myself, Michael, that I'm going to be more active in Mohit. I'm going to be more active. I'm going to do it. You know, Dan was really inspiring for me. There was so much testimony from adults saying, this is what we need to do. This is how we need to be paternalistic figures. We don't need to teach LBTQ history because, you know, all sorts of arguments. We don't need to, we need to teach about, we need to re-include Moses in the state standards. We need to include um, every classroom needs to have in God we trust as a motto in every classroom, that sort of logic. But you know where this real story and the real movement came from is young people. And we need to listen to young people, especially young people who've gone through the schooling system and they're telling us exactly what they're missing. And you know, this is a fallacy I think a lot of folks who argue about our students don't have the agency or critical thinking to realize that if it's not taught in schools, they will find that information somewhere else through social media, through TikTok, through their own research. Our students are brilliant. And seeing their testimonies yesterday reminded me of number one, why we do this work. And second, to cede the floor to them. So to stop deciding as adults what they need to learn, they will tell you themselves what's been missing and the gaps that we need to fill. So speaking of filling the gaps, you've recently been published in Social Studies and the Young Learner for an article entitled Using Digital Archives to Teach Early South Asian American Histories. So first off, congratulations. That's a, you know, that it's it was a really good read. Thank you for, for it. Yay. Um, and then we also wanted to point out, this was the editors of this issue we're actually past guests and people who have already gotten name dropped on our podcast today. Well, Noreen Nassim Rodriguez and So Yunan were both past guests of ours. So great company, I guess. But do you mind telling us a little bit more about your article and how teachers can use it to make sure to tell better histories? Sure. You know, it's great. It's, I was lucky to be able to contribute to this special issue of social studies for the young learner. Of course, Dr. Noreen Nassim Rodriguez and Dr. Soyun An, their work has been foundational to changing the landscape of teaching Asian American experiences, history, voices across the social studies in the United States. And it was a great honor to be a, a contributor. And part of, in, in the work of doing Asian American studies in the, in the K-12 space or even in higher ed, there's often certain groups of people whose voices are doubly marginalized, sort of. This includes Southeast Asian Americans, Filipinx Americans, and sometimes South Asian Americans too. And I, I'm a South Asian American, I'm Indian American, first generation. And I wrote about something I didn't learn about until my 30s for multiple reasons, three things. One is a lot of teachers, social studies teachers draw upon well-known archives like the National Archives, right? So pulling the, I don't even remember this stuff from my high school history course, the Articles of Confederation or whatever, or the <laughs> Federalist Papers or the... the Federalist Papers, right? From the National Archives. When it comes to the stories of marginalized groups, those archives don't exist in those National Archives, or if they do, they're very limited. Second, they're not easy to access, right? A lot of archives, you have to make an appointment, they have to pull documents from some obscure location, you know, 
and then you have a limited time period to view them. For Asian American communities and other marginalized groups also, the project of public facing organizations, sometimes in partnerships with universities, in creating public archives has been so essential. And there's one project that I wanna give a shout out to, which is the South Asian American Digital Archive, which started about 13 years ago with Samit Malik, who is the executive director, sort of as a response to not seeing South Asian American voices included in history, not only in Texas, across the country. And Samip decided to start an archival program in which people could photo, send in their archival information from their families or their communities. It would there, then be scanned and digitalized and then sent back. So this kind of model is called a post-custodial model. In other ar archival collections, the archives become sort of permanent gift. So if I have an oral history or newspaper clipping from my family, I might donate it to the Harry Ransom Center at the University of Texas, and then it becomes their property. But in these archival projects that are community-based, the post-custodial project means that I still hold ownership of my family's archival material, but then it is digitized and easily accessible to anybody to look at. So not only scholars, not only folks who are tied to academia, but anybody who wants to learn this history. And so the South Asian American Digital Archive is so essential alongside other um, archival projects in Asian American communities, uh, the Southeast Asian American Digital Archive, which is, I believe, out of UC Irvine, the Densho Project, which shares the histories of Japanese Americans who were incarcerated during World War II, their oral histories, other artifacts, photography, so many other archival projects. So that was one purpose. Second was sharing an aspect of South Asian American history and making it accessible to teachers in the elementary classroom. I was an elementary teacher for seven years. And, you know, I, I, I make a lot of detours. And when I'm talking, I'm hoping this is going to make sense, but I'm going to ask Zach to edit if necessary. But a lot of the criticism yesterday at this hearing was that young learners are not ready for a lot of the content knowledge in this new social studies piece. I was an elementary school teacher teaching about the migration crisis from Syria in the 2000s. And actually Dr. Nareem Nassim Rodriguez was in my classroom collecting data, right? So we've shown how it can be done in a culturally responsive way and encourages young learners to think critically. We saw it, we had that data. Dr. Nassim Rodriguez can show you how we taught difficult histories in the elementary classroom. And so going back to my main point is that I didn't learn until my 30s that the first South Asian Americans actually arrived in the United States at the end of 20th century as part of larger networks of migration that were established from British Empire. So the British Empire during this time period at the late 20th century, of course, has control over the Indian subcontinent, but also Hong Kong. It has Canada still a Commonwealth uh, arrangement with the British Empire at this point. And so there's a movement of South Asian laborers from the Punjab region, which today is divided after South Asian partition in between Pakistan and India, but at least 8,000 South Asian migrants from this region from Punjab come to Washington, Oregon, and California state to work in lumber and agriculture. After 1917, there's an immigration law that's passed, the Immigration and Naturalization Act, 
that's also called the Asiatic Bard Zone. I have other colleagues, Dr. Esther Kim, who's written a great piece for this issue too that I invite everybody to check out, talking about the implications of what it meant to exclude an entire continent of people from immigration from the United States, which is what happened. And so the door closes on South Asian migrants, but this group of 8,000 8, or so who found themselves in, in uh, the West Coast have a very interesting story for multiple reasons. One is that they have transnational identities. They're both agitating for the independence of their homeland and participating in the civic projects of the United States. So you have a figure like Bhagat Singh Thind, who in 1913 arrives to work in the timber mills in Washington state. And then he enlists during World War I in the army. And so you have the first Sikh American who's preserving his religious garments, including the turban, including the uncut hair. And you see these iconic photos on the South Asian American Digital Archive website of a Sikh man with a group of other army folks at Camp Lewis. And teachers can take this photo and teach about concepts of citizenship. Bhagat Singh Tin, because of his race, was denied citizenship because we have naturalization laws in place in the United States at that time, mm -hmm. which only citizenship is available to free white men. And so in the article, I explained Bhagat Singh's story, including these artifacts that are available publicly for teachers to use. And Samik Malik from South Asian American Digital Archive has been so gracious in allowing those to use and reprint in the social studies for the young learner. But I can go on and on. I invite you to read the article. But as you can tell, I speak with such great passion because these things were kept from me until I was in my 30s. And for South Asian American communities, which are the biggest group of Asian Americans, including in the state of Texas where I live, we need more visibility of these stories in our social studies curriculum. As a high school teacher, I just want to point out for all the people who are not teaching, you know, elementary or younger or elementary students, the article is fantastic. I highly recommend looking at it. The resources are tremendous. I mean, it's a really great story that'll hook students in. So I think this could definitely be used. It could be scaled up. So take a, take a look. It's good. It's good. Thanks, Michael. And then also for high school teachers too, again, visiting the South Asian American Digital Archive for other yeah. things that tie in with what's being taught in U.S. history or world history or anything else. Yeah, I, I agree with Michael. When I look at these, I can see how you can use these in elementary and I can see how you can use these in high school and I can see how you can use these resources in college. And I really appreciate how the article, not only do you give us a bunch of resources to start doing the work, to start including more primary sources in your class to help students do that historical thinking and digital archive work they do. But I like that you start with the story of one man, right? That's really critical in understanding race and Asia and South Asian American histories. And so having the story of Bhagat Singh then right there, like to, to tell, right? Focusing on one story is always really helpful when people don't know where to start. And so you provided that, right? Like, and of course there's many more stories to focus on, but if you're not sure where, it, that's a good one. So what, what advice do you have for people that are going to read your article, use these resources and start doing better job of teaching South Asian histories? Yeah, Dan, actually, I'll, I'll get to that question. But one other thing came up for me is that, you know, Sikh Americans have made, uh, I'm South Asian, I'm Indian American, I grew up in the Jain religious tradition. I did not grow up Sikh, but I have great respect for Sikh um, people, Sikh communities, the Sikh faith, and they make great contributions to the country. You know, as a consequence of the 
Islamophobia after 9-11. And I would argue that Islamophobia, of course, existed. There's great scholarship, especially by Khaled Beydoun, an Egyptian-American scholar who really takes critical race theory and applies it to how is the United States essentially needs to construct Islamophobia sort of as a new Orientalism. I, I suggest looking up his work. But again, I detract. I do this a lot, Dan. The point I was trying to make is that Sikh Americans were one of the groups that were targeted after 9-11, right? We know this. We know that it's going to be the 10-year anniversary this year of a shooting by a white supremacist in Oak Park, Wisconsin. And six members of the Sikh temple Gurdwara there were, were killed. And Indianapolis in 2020 also at a FedEx facility, there was also targeting. It wasn't labeled by the government as a hate crime, but there were also three or four members of the Sikh community that were targeted at that point. And there's a misconception because of our lack of global history, religious history of who Sikh people are. And you know, part of my intention in this article was to trace back the long history of Sikh people in the United States, way back with Bhagat Singh Thind and his contemporaries who came from the Punjab region. Many were Muslim, some were Hindu, but the vast majority were Sikh. And so Dan, to answer your question is, this is new stuff. We haven't taught Asian American histories in such a massive scale as we're trying to do now, partly because of these state um, mandates or movements across different states to have Asian American histories included in social studies curricula. And so I think it's okay for teachers to take some time, do some work in learning, being curious about this stuff, reading on your own, hopefully some of the resources that I suggest are places where you go to. And there's no, there's no urgency in feeling like, oh, I need to take this and I need to do this next week or next month or even next year. And it's okay to take some time to grapple, to learn, to gain mastery on what the concepts are here. And then when you feel like you have in, internalized sort of, I wanna say this story for yourself, that it's important to you personally as a teacher, that you find personal conviction in the importance of teaching this, then take this up. Yeah, that's really, really great advice. And, you know, yeah, I think that we got to go deep, right? And understand it before we can start teaching it. If you jump into it too quick, you certainly can probably make a lot of mistakes and, and end up doing more harm than you do good. But if you put the time in that, you know, you can, it can be like those students who come out of your class and feel like it was an experience that they've always deserved to have in school. Absolutely. And I think, Dan, I, you know, being in academia, I'm sure you know this, the sort of fast paced of everything, of publishing, of tenure, all these things. And I try to heed the messages of people who say to slow down, to pause, to really enjoy this process. And not, it's not easy. And definitely as a classroom teacher, the amount of things you're asked to do, it's not easy. But I think we have to make intentional decisions to say sometimes, I need time. I need time to learn to be a scholar myself as a teacher and learn things that were also kept for me, right? So that I can do justice by all of my students, not only Asian American students, but including the voices of all Americans, whether it's indigenous Americans, LGBTQ Americans, Americans with disabilities, all, all sorts of groups whose stories have been marginalized. 
Well, thank you so much for not only your your work at the state level, but for writing this great article, which is a great resource. And there, there's no good excuses for if you're in social studies anymore. There's so much good work that's being done around Asian American histories from some of the scholars we've named. And we've really got a lot. We put a lot of notes into our show notes. So feel free to make sure to check those out. Mohit, where can our listeners find you and your work online? I am just in the beginning of the publishing process, so I will share some of my pieces coming out in the next couple of months. This piece in the Social Studies and the Young Learner was my first piece, so I'm excited about that, but I will share as the other pieces come out, and I'm trying to build just a personal website, and you can email me. I'll provide that as well for anybody who wants to reach out. Anybody who's interested in asking questions about the article itself, I will be more than happy to respond. Absolutely. And you are welcome to send us your your updates and we will add them to our show notes because sometimes people listen to these a couple of years later. And so they love to see what new articles and things you're up to. So we we certainly hope people can visit our website and, and keep learning from your work. Awesome. Thank you so much, Dan. So Michael had to go. Uh, it was bedtime when we were recording this. And so he had to go off. So I'm going to take over Michael's role here because at the Visions of Education podcast, we are all about sharing the learning. If you're doing something fun, creative in education, tweet us at Visions of Ed or hit us up on Facebook. Somebody's on Facebook. It's not me. Maybe Michael's checking that account. I don't know. And if you haven't already, subscribe to Visions of Education on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or really anywhere where they have podcasts. Michael says anywhere you want us to be, but that sounds a little too surveillance creepy to me. If you read us a five-star review, we'll read it on the air. And we would like to thank Zach Seitz of Wiley High School and the University of North Texas for his editing skills. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And you can find Michael. He's at 42 Think Deep. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast, signing off.